Good morning. Invite you to uh, put a marker. We're not going to be there till a little bit later, but put a marker in Ephesians chapter three. That is, uh, if you're using a Bible that is uh, uh, provided for you here in front of your chair, that's page nine seventy seven. We are beginning to near the end of our series, We Believe, Living in Light of Your Faith. And I I pray that it was helpful, it has been helpful to you in looking not just at what Scripture teaches, but how we are to then conduct our lives in light of that. As we begin to wind down this week and next week, uh, Michael will be uh, beginning a series Um, in, I guess it would be the week after next, on the 18th, I believe it is, um, on the book of Philippians. So uh, you're going to be able to take a break from hearing me all the time, and uh, Michael's going to go through a little series with us uh, through the book of Philippians. So uh, I'm excited for that, and, and I hope you are too, to receive what the Lord has for you there. The title of what we're going to be looking at the next two weeks is Then Comes the End, a look at last things. This is the last major doctrine, last major teaching that we are going to be looking at. And as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think of various books that I've read in the past. And I wondered if if you experienced the same thing that I would often experience. Have you ever been reading a book and you've been so excited to find out what happens in the story that you kind of ruin it for yourself, you skip ahead because the curiosity got the better of you? How many of you have done that? Okay, okay. It usually doesn't help that much, does it? Because there's characters that may be introduced that, that you never even knew about where you're at. How many of you have ever read those uh, books? I never did. Rachel did growing up, where um, it's like you choose the ending. It's like at the end of the chapter, uh, go to page this if, if you want this to happen, or page that if you want. How many of you have ever read those growing up? Okay, okay. Well, two books that, uh, two series of books growing up that I read that I absolutely loved was first of all the Hardy Boys series. How many of you guys or even ladies like the Hardy Boys? I guess the, 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 equivalent, the female equivalent series to that was Nancy Drew. And I would do book reports on the Hardy Boys. In fact, one night I had to read the whole book in one night because I waited too long. <laughs> and the mystery was, will I finish it in time? <laughs> But it was always, there, there's always that twist. Now with the Hardy Boys series, I don't know if it's true of Nancy Drew, but it was like every book followed the same pattern. Um, so that was the downside of the Hardy Boys. But I just went to the library a few weeks ago and got Timmy his first Hardy Boy book uh, to read. But I remember just wondering what would happen in that mystery series. Another series that I absolutely loved, I don't know if some of you guys like this, um, the Matt Christopher Sports books for kids? Anybody familiar with those? Okay. <laughs> well, he was a famous author. He died recently. Um, like he wrote most of his books in the 50s, 60s, so they were older. But they were always really cool. It's about these kids and they, they were on sports teams and different things happened in their life and and whatever, but it was always interesting to want to get to the end of that to see exactly how everything unfolds. And how all of the loose ends get tied together. And there's really a lot of of, of times that we are desiring and anticipating to know the end. I mean, for instance, it might not be books. Maybe you're waiting for that phone call. Maybe you're waiting for that phone call to find out how things went for your kids. Or maybe you're a spouse. You're waiting for that phone call to find out from your spouse um, how that job interview went. Or whether you're getting that letter, that email of acceptance, whether that's to a school or whether that is an acceptance to something you've applied for, and you're waiting. You're eagerly anticipating what is in store. 
Well, regardless of the circumstances, when we think about what is coming, it usually generates much excitement. The excitement of the unknown, or maybe some apprehension of the unknown. And as we come to this last major aspect of of Bible doctrines or Bible teachings we're going to see that there is similarly much curiosity and much excitement as believers look into what is to come. Now here's where we need to caution ourselves that much of this excitement and curiosity is very healthy, but there's also much of this curiosity and excitement that is unhealthy as God's people. Now the great difference between what the Bible unfolds for what is to come and what we have just looked at with examples of books or wondering what's going to happen with a job interview or whatever, the difference is that in the Scriptures, we are not left wondering how God's drama will turn out. Amen? Now, we don't know all of the details, and and as we will see, there is much that is up for debate. But we know the end of the story, that God wins, that God's kingdom is established. We know the end of the story. We know the final verdict in the reality Well, this morning, we are going to just begin looking at this theme of that which is to come. And what we're going to do is we're going to seek to gain a proper understanding of the end of God's story. God's story, not our own story. And we're going to seek to answer such questions over these next two weeks, such as, what is the purpose of the end times, of studying the end times. We're going to use a big word today, and you may know it, you may not know it. It's the word eschatology. Say that together. Eschatology. That's simply a big word that means the study of end time things, of the study of that which is to come in God's timetable. But we're going to look at what is the purpose of eschatology. Is it simply to fill our heads? Is it simply to itch some curiosity Is it simply escapism that, oh, this world is going to shambles, i got to get out of here? Is that what eschatology is all about? We're going to also seek to answer the question, how does the Bible portray that which is yet to come? We're going to look at what is the general framework of various views concerning end-time events. We're going to also see how are we to view differences of opinion regarding that which is yet to come. How are we to view differences of opinion? And all of this is to bring us to a goal. The goal is not to have a corner on the market of truth. Because as we're going to see in this series, good people disagree concerning what exactly is going to play out with end time events. The goal is not to have our T's crossed and our I's dotted. Jesus says no man knows when when the Son of Man shall return, but we know He is. The goal, let's read it together for two last times. God's people are called to both know and live. To know and to live. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this teaching of that which is to come, Father, would you give us a biblical perspective of how we are to view, how we are to anticipate, and how we are to live in light of your soon coming. Lord, we don't know when that is. We don't know exactly how the details of these things will unfold. But Lord, we know the truth and the reality that you are coming again. Lord, you have the final say. You will right every wrong. And Lord, we know that one day the curse of sin will be removed. Not only from these bodies, but from this world. 
And Lord, we thank you for that truth and we cling to that. And Lord, would we live in light of it in even the most simple of decisions that we make on a daily basis. For it's in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are going to unpack some things that we've really already talked about in this series. And for at the risk of being repetitive, I think that it's good that we look at some of the unfolding events of Scripture in light of the lens of that which is yet to come. Because I think we need to uncover some of these things or re-talk about some of these things to realize how we are to have a proper perspective concerning end time events and that which is yet, yet to come, eschatology. And the, the point we're going to look at today is eschatology is the aim of Scripture. Eschatology, or uh, that which is to come, is the aim of Scripture. Now, if you looked in your title, you'll, uh, in the title of uh, in your bulletin, if you already did that this morning when you came in, you notice that there's no reference written down. You may naturally see this title of that which is yet to come, or the study of, of that which is yet to come, and think, okay, let's turn to Revelation. Isn't that what usually comes to our mind? But here's the reality. Let's turn to the book of Genesis. That is where we find the beginning of eschatology. Genesis chapter 1. What, I, what my goal is for you to see, what my prayer is for the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, to open our, our understanding to this morning, is that eschatology is the very message of the Bible. The Bible is in a single trajectory and it is moving forward to the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. Therefore, eschatology does not simply exist in the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. It is over every page of Scripture because God is moving towards a desired end. And we're going to see that God has always had a set plan. God has always had a set plan. And we're going to look at this set plan from the very intent of God's creation. And what we're simply going to do this morning is we are going to look at several different stages of, of how we view God's plan as moving forward to his desired end that we come to in Revelation 21 and 22. And we're going to look at a general framework of how God has moved throughout Scripture. A good illustration, if you remember, it was either last week or the week before, I, I mentioned that a good illustration of the Christian life is being in an airplane. Because when you are in an airplane... You are actively busy, you are walking about a plane, but yet your complete dependence is, is on that airplane that it's not going to crash, right? You are, uh, no matter how hard you grasp the seat, man, if that thing goes down, you're done. <laughs> a good analogy of eschatology is likewise an airplane. You see, let's pretend this air, the, the, the analogy of, air, of the airplane in the Christian life is much different than a normal airplane. Let's pretend in this analogy we are all stewards and stewardesses as we are in the Christian life. We are all given a function in the Christian life. And we are serving the peanuts and the drinks, so to speak, to one another as fellow stewards, as we, we serve one another in this church, but we are also serving those who are without Christ. And we are all active about on this plane. We are busy being stewards and stewardesses for the pilot. And because we are actively about 
we know that there is a destination ahead, and we are moving towards that destination the entire duration of the flight, aren't we? But yet, that does not negate the fact that we are actively working in the present. You see, that's the Bible. The Bible is actively on a course, on a destination. And we may not think about it and realize it at every point in time in which we are serving and living and seeking to minister. But rest assured that God's plan is always going forward. There may be turbulence along the way. There may be storms that we see that the great captain, he, he uh, knows are there, he's allowed to be there, and the plane may go around those storms, and at, time, at times it seems, God, what's going on? When are we going to arrive? And, and we may not understand, but rest assured, we are always headed to that destination. And we're going to talk about this a little bit next week. But guess what would be unhealthy for us as stewards and stewardesses? If the whole time, if we were going to sit down and speculate about when we're going to arrive, how we're going to arrive, what are all the details of arriving, and we are no longer carrying out the proper service to our Lord because we are not working in the assurance that we will arrive. You see, that is the danger. But let's look at this unfolding of eschatology beginning in Genesis. We see this in the creation intent. The first major figure that we see, besides for God Himself from the very first verse of Genesis 1, besides for God, is Adam. And we have talked about this, but again, I want us to view this through the lens of of eschatology, verse 28. Notice it says, and God blessed them. Who's the them there? Adam and Eve, right? And God said to them, and we see here five commands, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The command here is for Adam and Eve to multiply themselves. Verse 28 has to be seen in light of the context of verse 27, that it is Adam, it is, it is, it is Eve, that are created in God's own image. In other words, they are His representatives. You remember we talked about this when we looked at the teaching of creation. As His representatives, we see here the very plan of God in the first pages of Genesis that the whole world is to be filled, to be populated with image bearers for God. Why? so that God's glory would extend not just in a way that we know God's glory is everywhere, but God's glory would relationally and experientially fill the globe of His creation. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork, Psalm 19 tells us. But what specifically is God desirous for? That I would be their God and they would be my people. God desires a relationship and He desires His glory to be known relationally. Adam and Eve's responsibility were to be populators of this earth to fill the earth with His image bearers from sea to shining sea, so to speak. They were to rule this creation for God. They were to have dominion. They were to subdue all of God's creation. They were to take charge of it. They were to be stewards of it. 
And we know what happened. We talked about this in detail in the study of what sin is. You remember the cosmic treason? The rebellion against the holy God? They fall from their place of being God's perfect representatives. God has to now remove them from the garden. There's now a void. And then when we read the rest of, of Genesis, after we get to Genesis 3, we, we, we see hope. In our Discover CBC class, we talked about Genesis 3.15 yesterday. The hope of the Gospel, that, that there is hope in Scripture, that what Adam and Eve did, it did not offset God's plan. It didn't take him by surprise. He knew what would happen. And he says that he's going to undo what Adam did by sending an offspring to bruise the serpent, to bruise Satan. And we continue to see a moving forward of God's plan. In chapter 4, as Adam and Eve, they now have, have children just like God said to have. And Cain and Abel are born. But then again, we see because sin is in this world, there's this battle and while things seem to be looking up and moving forward, what happens? All of a sudden, Cain kills his brother. You're reading that for the first time, that takes you off guard. Like, what in the world? And, and every time in Genesis, it seems that things are moving forward. There seems to be a roadblock. Something bad happens. When you get to Genesis 5, we read... That, or at the end of Genesis 4, verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. In other words, maybe Seth is the offspring that's going to free us. And things are looking up again. In fact, in verse 5, talking of Seth, it, it uses the words that, that Seth was born um, uh, uh, in the image of God, uh, in the image of Adam, you have that language there. Things are looking up, but then you get to chapter six, and what happens? There, there's corruption everywhere. So bad that the world is not being populated with God's image bearers that are reflecting His glory. The world is being populated by image bearers that want to reflect their own glory. I bring you this detail here to show you, do you see that Scripture is on a trajectory? What you read before you get to the book of Revelation is not just... History that, that, that all of a sudden you get to Revelation and uh, now we're talking about going forward. God's plan is moving forward despite the turbulence in the plane or outside of the plane. In Genesis 9, we get to the second key figure that the Bible presents for, for us in Genesis and, and that is Noah. You see, creation becomes so corrupt that God is going to judge His earth with the flood. God is going to, in a sense, decreate what He has created. Sin causes corruption, and we see it now will affect the entire globe. And what do we see? God delivers. The Bible again shows us hope that there is still a string of hope in this story. That Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. We don't have to write the end already on God's story. And in Genesis 9 verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, does this sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look at verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
You see, as those waters descend, it's almost like there is a cleansing of the earth. There is a second creation. And now Noah becomes this new Adam. And, and God gives the same command to Noah that he gave to Adam. God's trajectory is moving forward. My goal is that the earth be filled with my image bearers, that I would relationally dwell with mankind in perfect communion for all eternity. My plan has not changed, God is saying in essence. But it doesn't take long to read in chapter 9 that just like Adam failed God by the fruit of the vine, and he exposes his nakedness. The he real, Adam realizes that he is naked. When sin comes into the world, so we find Noah, drunk from the fruit of the vine, naked. Do you think that those parallels are there just by chance? Remember we talked about reading the unfolding story of God connected? Not just in segments. I mean, this is the richness of, the, of what you get from the biblical text when you see the connections. And then we see that God's plan to be fruitful and multiply, it, it, it's, it's happening. Chapter 10 goes through a whole genealogy of nations. But guess what? Then we get to chapter 11. These people that are spreading across that are, that, that are growing and multiplying rather than wanting to showcase God's glory in a relational way. Guess what they want to do? They want to build a, a, a temple. They want to be gods themselves. They don't want to be dependent on God. They don't want to obey the mandate that God gave Adam and Noah. They want to stick together. I mean, isn't the, the story of the Bible a lot like our Christian lives like this? but yet it's still a trajectory, isn't it? Listen, we, discourage, we get discouraged because uh, we, we slip and we fall and we get discouraged and we sin and we're not where we want to be. But listen, here's where we take heart, that we in our spiritual lives are on a trajectory as well. God is doing a work in our hearts and though we are not as we wish to be, if we are followers of Jesus, we have the assurance that He will make us what we ought to be. Amen? And we see this all over the pages of Scripture. The third key figure now that we come up against, uh, or uh, we come up with, not against, is Abraham. Notice all how all these figures are in the book of Genesis. This is why the book of Genesis is so important. As we get to, to, to Abraham, we see that he is a descendant of idolaters. He himself is an idolater. He's not a seeker after God. But what does God say to Abraham? Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Does that ring a bell of God's, what God tells Adam and Eve about being fruitful and multiplying? I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. You and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, here we now see more detail in God's trajectory. That just as God told Adam, he told Noah to be fruitful, to multiply, so that God's, so that God's representatives, his image bearers would fill the earth. God is now saying, I am going to work through a specific line. That you, Abraham, and your descendants are going to be a blessing to all the nations. I'm going to be fruitful to multiply you. No longer does God tell them to multiply. No, because of sin, we see mankind's inability. God says, I am going to multiply you. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? A lot of times we think we can do all these great things for God and then we fall flat on our face and reality sinks in. Listen, it is God who works within us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Faithful is He who calls you who also will do it. 
God says, I am going to do this. But you must go, Abraham. And inherent in this passage is also the promise of land. Listen, Genesis 12 is not the first mention of land in the Bible. What God is saying is not simply, I am going to give you a strip of land in the Middle East. God says, I am going to bring my people back to Eden. Back to the land which they have lost, which Adam lost, where I was in perfect communion with them. And we see in Revelation that that land is going to cover not just one geographical area, but the entire globe. And God now works through Abraham and his descendants. We get to the fourth major unfolding of Scripture, and that is Israel. If you flip over in your Bibles to the book of Exodus 19, you know the story. There's a lot that we're skipping. But you know that Jacob has 12 sons. They are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Just like God promised Abraham, they did go into Egypt. They would face slavery and hardship. They would face difficulty, but God would be faithful and bring them out. God would be faithful to His promises. And in Exodus 19, 5-6, before God gives His people the law, the reason God gives His people the law, we know ultimately it is to expose our sin But immediately, he is giving his people the law to say, I am going to dwell among you similarly to how I dwelt among Adam in the garden. Relationally, my physical presence will be with you in the tabernacle. So here is how you are to live as my people. If you are going to be my people, here is how you are to live. That is the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. It's not just to have a list of rules. But Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Remember, all the nations in Genesis 10 are spreading, but God says, The offspring of Abraham are my special possession. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see that they are to be the image bearers of God. God's plan for Israel was that the nations would look at the nation of Israel and they would see God because they were in His image. And those nations would be brought to God as well. They would be a kingdom of priests representing God before the world. Time doesn't permit, but as we look further on, we're going to see that we are given that same exact description. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, Can I stop and ask you, how are you representing God as His image bearer to your friends, your family, your co-workers? Are you living like the world? Are you thinking like the world? Is your mentality so caught up with the culture's opinions of what is truth that you are becoming indistinguishable from the world just like we see Israel in the Old Testament, what happened to them? As we look at the nation of Israel, there again are such similarities between we see the fulfillment of what God had said to Adam I just want to point out a few verses of interest. Remember God tells tells Adam to subdue the earth? In Numbers 32, verse 22, you don't have to turn there, but some of the tribes wanted to have their territories on on, um, the other side of the river 
And Moses was afraid that they wouldn't go and defeat the Canaanites if they were to already have their allotment, their place where they were to live. And Noah says um, that, uh, and he, he, we're kind of cutting in on the story, but I just want you to get this. It says, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then after that, you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Basically, what he tells these tribes is, well, you're, you, if you get that land, you're going to come with us. You are going to subdue the land. You see, what was wrong with the Canaanites? God says that their wickedness has come before me, their, their, their evil works. I am giving you this land to subdue for my glory. As my people, you are going to minister to the world here. Joshua 18.1, the story goes, as the people are defeating the Canaanites, it says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land lay subdued before them. Now you may be saying, well, Pastor Adam, you're getting kind of deep here. I'm getting kind of lost in the weeds. What I want you to see overall, don't get discouraged if you're not completely following along. This is the first time you've heard this. I want you to see that there is a trajectory of Scripture all the way from Genesis 1 that is not lost sight of in the unfolding of God's plan. And you may say, well, wow, you know, this is real detailed, and this is, maybe you'd think this is kind of boring, which, which, I mean, if you think that, I would say you don't understand it. But uh, you may say, what does this have to do with me? And I would say that a God that is this detailed in His plan is certainly this detailed in our lives. Is He not? And are we going to get on the trajectory with God? As we then see with Israel, of course we know, that Israel became like the other nations. They were not a kingdom representing God as priests, as image bearers for God. God sends them into exile. It seems like there's no hope. But then God sends Christ. And I don't have Christ uh, there in the, uh, in the middle between Israel and the church. But what I want to do is to tie in Christ with these, with these earthly images that we see here on the overhead. That Jesus comes, what? What does Colossians say? He is the image of God. He came as the perfect image bearer of God. He did what Adam could not do. He did what all of these people before, he did what Israel could not do. He perfectly manifested, represented God before the world. And guess what? Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus, as Paul says, the offspring being referred to was Christ, not simply Isaac. Jesus was the image bearer of God to the nations. And hence we have the church. Because of Jesus and our connection to Jesus, we too are called, as Galatians says, offspring, children of Abraham. It's not because we're Jewish by blood, it is because we are connected to Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. And where do we fit in line with this trajectory, this aim of that which is to come in God's plan? I would propose to you, and you don't need to turn there, but we find the answer in Matthew 28. Let's just look at this passage. And Jesus came and said to them all, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus. Go therefore and make 
disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the what? Here you have the unfolding of God's story. Listen, we, by extension and through, through Christ, are given the mandate that was given all the way back in Genesis 1. Being fruitful and multiplying. How do we be fruitful and multiply? It is not simply through having babies. It is through making disciples. To be God's image bearers and to go into where? All the nations. Does that not ring back to Genesis 12? That we are to go to all of the nations. We are to be His image bearers and we are to multiply in making disciples. All of this comes with the assurance that we, that God, that Jesus is with us carrying out His plan until the end of the age. I don't know about you, but that makes me think that church is a lot more than what we're doing right now on Sunday morning from, from 9.45 to, if you stay for ABF, to 12.15. That makes me think that if you call yourself a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and you are not involved in the mandate of Matthew 28, then something's wrong. If our intent is not outward, and, and, and our intent, not only as a church, but we talked about this in Discover CBC, no church, uh, you know the expression, is, is stronger than its weakest link, then if individuals are not comprised of seeking the Great Commission on an individual basis in your own life, then how in the world is the church? Because the church is comprised of people. You see, we... Are taking, play, are taking part in God's eschatological end-time plans. Don't get me wrong. It's not that we bring in the kingdom or we usher in God's return. We'll talk a little bit about that, though not in great detail, next week. It's uh, God has to sovereignly intervene. But yet we are taking part in God's sovereign plan of the end of the ages. If you have your, uh, a little paper or something in Ephesians 3, I want to show you something. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, man, of the greatness of the gospel. We were once dead. We were a part of the old creation. We were dead in our sins. And God made us alive. Verse 4 of chapter 2 um, is, is such a lovely verse. Despite all the bad things you read in, in verses 1 to 3, but God. And man, that's an important phrase right there. It's a game changer, literally. And then in chapter 3, Paul talks about the unfolding of this gospel throughout the ages. The unfolding of this mystery. Listen to what Paul says about the church. I'm going to start in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's one of my life verses. Verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden. And depending on what your translation says, uh, what's the next phrase? For, for eons or for ages in God who created all things. 
So that, what was the purpose of God revealing this mystery that was hidden? So that through who? The church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You know what Paul's saying here? Is Paul is saying that the climactic revelation of God's plan from eternity past is the church. That God has no plan B. And it has always been that Jew, Gentile together would come together through Jesus and would manifest God's glory and the wisdom of His working and His power and His plans even before the heavenly rulers and authorities. Does that make you think that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of something significant? The manifold wisdom of God, the text says. You know what the word picture we're given is? It's like a diamond. How many of you um, within the, well, I don't think anybody within the past year or two has been engaged here, right? How many of you remember, you're, you're a lady, and you remember getting your engagement ring and staring at it? Rachel stared at it because it was so hard to find. (laughs) But you know, you're staring at it from all these different angles, right? Why? Because there's a different reflection. Oh, look at that. Whoa, look look at that reflection. That's almost like a different color. Whoa, look at that sparkle. That's the idea of the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God. I mean, man, when you look at this trajectory, the aim of Scripture from Genesis to its outworking, and then you get to God's climactic element of the church, and one day that bride will be complete, and one day he will return, when you see there is no limit to the depth of awe and wonder at what God has done and is doing. That's what it's saying. And listen, if, if, if there is a problem in 21st century Christianity, it is a devaluing of the church. It is the idea of independence that I'm a, my soul, I'm, I'm a, I'm, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you know, I'm kind of going my own road. I don't need God's people. I can, you know, I'm going to keep everybody at an arm's distance. And I'm going to kind of blaze my own trail. Listen, that is completely contrary to the very manifold purposes of God for his people. You're treading some very dangerous waters if you're going to go solo. God's plan is to reveal himself through his church. As we close today, there's much more that could be said. But I just want to close with this second thought. Not only do we see that God has always had a set plan, but if you haven't guessed it, I've already said it a couple times, do not limit God's future or eschatological plan to revelation. Because if you do, guess what happens? Man, you missed the entire purpose of the book. Did you know that Revelation quotes or alludes the Old Testament more than any other book of the Bible? Did you know that? Did you know that you can't properly understand Revelation till you have a grasp of the Old Testament? Yeah, even those hard-to-understand prophets that seem insignificant to us. Folks, it's time we put on some new lenses And we look at the story of God's word as unfolding 
and telling us about God's plan. And it is then, like what we see in Ephesians 3, that we live out our lives. What's Paul's so what? Hopefully I haven't moved from Ephesians 3. This is my last thought, potentially. No. <laughs> I'm on a trajectory. I just don't know when it will end. <laughs> no man knows the time or the hour. <laughs> Not even my wife. <laughs> After all of these glorious things, it's easy to get caught up and say, man, these truths are so high and lofty. How in the world am I supposed to even comprehend them and what am I supposed to do? Man, this trickles down to even the most minutia aspects of your life and how you're to live. Because what does Paul say? After all of this detail about God's climactic plan being the church, he goes right back down to the everyday life of these people and of Paul himself. And what does he say? After all of this, he doesn't say, so therefore, you know, wrap your minds around that, Ephesians, or uh, Ephesus people. No, he says, so, basically, in light, of what, uh, in light of this truth, I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Because this is your glory. In other words, this is the way that the church is going to prosper. This is the unfolding plan of God for, for the church. So don't fret. Don't worry. Listen, you can take everything we've talked about today and bring it right down to the nitty-gritty things that you're dealing with today. That man, if God has a trajectory for everything in existence and for this world and all these details I can't even wrap my mind around, doesn't he have a plan, a trajectory for my life? Can I not trust him and his sovereignty and his love and his grace? Can I not place these things before him and give them to him and trust Can I not trust the future of my children and my future to God knowing that He has a future for everything? Folks, that is when eschatology really hits home. Let's pray.